Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for day, April 12th, Sunday, April 12th, Who knows 2020. <laughs> My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Michael. You have been... Um, Making the most of your time <laughs> well, in, 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 in one way, you got to uh, you started to dig into free for all. Joe Papp, the public, the greatest theater story ever told by Kenneth Turin. So tell us, uh, you, it, it, this is a page turner, isn't it? It is. Honestly, it's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Uh, I think I got it in a gift bag. Some uh-huh. time ago, it might have been at a, at a uh, talking Broadway party, to, uh, 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 you know, one of their uh, parties they do every year around the time of the Tonys. Um, but I just never had gotten to it, although uh, as soon as I looked in the bag and saw what it was, I was like, oh, gosh, um, it looks really interesting from the, <laughs> the beginning, obviously, because I know some of the some of the story already, and I know how fascinating it is. There's a great photo on the cover, incredible photo of uh, Joe standing in front of a huge poster of Sam Waterston in, um, I, I think it was Hamlet uh, years ago. It's a, it's a really great image. And I, the, I believe that Kenneth Turin interviewed people over decades for this book. And in fact, it was published in 2009, so it's already that long ago. And it says um, in the notes that some 40 of Kenneth Turin's interviewees have died since he began mm. working on Free For All. So since that's 11 years ago, there are even more now. And it's so it's an incredible, incredible historical document in that sense. But the... Uh, the stories, uh, it's, it's done in the form of an oral history. Um, it's literally one little interview excerpt after another, uh, including many with Pap himself. But, for example, you'll have something by 
a quote, a long quote from Joseph Papp, and then Morris Karnofsky, Phoebe Brand. Um, but then you get to people like Colleen Dewhurst, James Earl Jones, Jerry Stiller, and Mara. Uh, I haven't gotten to uh, Meryl Streep yet because the book goes basically chronologically, and she hasn't entered the picture yet. But it's every... <laughs> People I knew and people I did not know had ever worked at the public. The history is so incredibly rich. And the stories, some of them are beyond hilarious of the whole genesis, uh, how uh, Pap originally started doing some Shakespeare scenes at a, at, at a church on the Lower East Side. And then they uh, went to the Heckscher Theater. And then they were working in some kind of amphitheater on the East River. And all of that is before uh, the mobile unit that they started to bring around to the boroughs. And all of that was before the Delacourt, which uh, the story of that alone could, you could probably write a, a book <laughs> on that in itself. Um, so many unbelievably fascinating things I read. I, I could talk for three hours, but I made a few notes just of things that I found fascinating. Um, did you know that the building uh, where the public is now on Lafayette Street, which started as the Astor Library, and then for a while it was, um, uh, for a brief while it was some kind of a, a, a Jewish uh, uh, refugee building of some sort. Uh, and then it was derelict for a while uh, before the, before public took it over but did you know it was originally going to be one 850 seat theater no yes yeah i've forgotten that i've read the book but i've forgotten that yeah uh but then uh joe said he began to kind of fall in love with the configuration of the building as it was and they decided to uh you know break it up into several smaller theaters uh here's an interesting thing uh joe was originally against the building what became the Delacorte uh, because he was, he said he was wary of any kind of ongoing permanent relationship with the uh, city and the parks department. Uh, he felt it was better and that there might be more creative um, freedom if it was just kind of more loosely structured and not permanent. And also he, he said he was hesitant to build uh, a new large permanent structure in the natural surroundings. He, he was, not sure if that was the right thing to do. Uh, but anyway, obviously, we know what happened with that, and it turned into just an incredible legacy and one of the focal points of the cultural life of the city. Um, and then again, hundreds, thousands of unbelievably interesting stories about people who worked with him and uh, worked with him several times, people who clashed with him and then left. Uh, people who came back. Here's something I did not know. Gerald Friedman, who only died quite recently, I believe, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is credited by several people as as much of an author of hair as Rag Ragni, Rado, and McDermott, uh, because he really structured it from these <laughs> very loose scribblings uh, and into some kind of a cohesive piece with some kind of a thrust and narrative to it and he was the original director then he was fired during rehearsals this is the original off-broadway production obviously then he was rehired after the first preview uh 
and then he wound up, of course, not doing it when it moved to Broadway. But um, Rangi and Rado, uh, everyone says, were were very difficult because they didn't. They, it was just kind of their personalities, and they didn't have experience working in that kind of situation. And and there's a wonderful quote from Joe Papp where he said um, he he did find them very difficult, and he realized that he had never really had to deal with live. Oh, right, 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 yeah, yeah. Before, <laughs> <laughs> you know, prior to that, it had just been Shakespeare, and you know, he was right. <laughs> so anyway, it's an amazing, amazing book. I'll I'll um, make some more notes of particularly fascinating things in it and maybe discuss them in the future. But I can't, I, I, it's, it's been a, a real um, solace to me. And, and it's really, uh, I, I don't know about you all, but I do find it difficult to focus on things uh, sometimes during this crisis on, on reading or even watching things and listening because, you know, for obvious reasons, but it's a real tribute to this book that it pulls me in. And I am just gripped by these amazing, hilarious, moving, informative, incredible stories. Well, it's funny you mentioned Joe Pep because uh, what I did the other night, um, when Sereno Coin, I think was 20 years old, they're an advertising agency. Hmm. They put out a, um, a two DVD set of the commercials. Um, I, I don't think they're all the commercials because the famous Paula Glogau um, Grand Hotel, I loved it, uh, isn't on there. And there are Grand Hotel commercials. Um, by the way, um, I did a little uh, research. I'm going to talk about Joe Papp in a second, but let, since I mentioned Paula Glogau, um, she, uh, in her famous commercial where she went, since Charisse is fabulous, wonderful. I want to see the show two more times. If you remember this commercial, but anyway, um, when uh, the the um, interviewer said, um, when are you going to see it again? As soon as I get tickets, my husband works in the area. But here's the thing. I did some research yesterday. My husband works in the area is on her tombstone. <laughs> Google it. You'll find it. You'll she, find it. She didn't say I want to say it. Two, I want to see it two more times. She said twice I want more. It, I want to see it twice more. Yeah. Um, she said both. In fact. Oh really? <laughs> anyway. All right, Joe Papp. So there's a commercial with Joe Papp in his famous black overcoat and white scarf while smoking his trademark cigar, Macaroli heroically stating, "I'm the expert." Check these credentials. Hair, two gents, meaning two gentlemen of Verona. The Pirates of Penzance, a chorus line, all daring, all different, all smash hits. I know what I'm doing. You know what I'm doing now? The human comedy. Well, I don't know. Maybe it was too strident a sales push, pitch. I don't know, because the show only lasted 13 performances. But it, it was really something. I hadn't seen that uh, during the original run because, of course, probably because, you know, in two weeks they weren't running that commercial anymore. But um, but it was something to see Joe Papp uh, doing a commercial. He really believed in that. I remember how hard he pushed it. And it was kind of uncharacteristic in a way when you read uh you know, the, the, the entirety of this book and how he was, uh, for the most part, he was very non-commercial, but I think he, um, you know, uh, well, oh, one thing they mentioned is that they did not get anywhere near as much money from hair as they could have because of the arrangement that they made. Uh, they didn't think, uh, that it was, you know, 
that that it was going to be anything amazing, and and they uh, they they didn't retain enough ownership of it. So um, the they when uh, chorus line. Uh, well, well. First of all, I mean, there were ones before that was two gentlemen of Verona. That was a much better deal that they had, although that was not that big a hit. But it, you know, it was. Uh, and that's interesting how they uh, made those arrangements. Of course, a chorus line uh, kept them going for years. But at the time of um, human comedy, I guess Joe felt that things were really, really lean, and he needed a, a commercial hit, and that was something that he really would have liked to have. But unfortunately, that show. Um, I mean, I love the score, and there are many things I love about it, but it's just not, I wouldn't say it's a mass appeal kind of show by any means. And yet, if you watch the movie, which is a wonderful movie, Mm. and Mickey Rooney is sensational in it, uh, when he applies for a job um, delivering telegrams, Mm -hmm. it's just a passing moment in the movie, and yet the sequence in the the stage um, musical uh, the human comedy is so much more effective where the kid is asked to audition. And if you have to deliver a singing telegram, um, let's hear you sing happy birthday. Now, of course, happy birthday uh, is a song that was still under copyright. And the point is they didn't use the melody because the kid stinks as a singer. And so he's totally off key. And (laughs) so it's a wonderful thing to hear him, you know, try. And at the end, he's so endearing that the people give him the job anyway, that they say, yeah, that's good, (laughs) you know, and, and they get away without paying paying royalties for uh, for happy birthday. Um, But yes, that's a very good point, Michael, about um, the fact that they didn't reap all the benefits of hair that they might have. And around the same time, the same thing happened with Arena Stage, which developed The Great White Hope. And um, then it came to Broadway, was a nice big hit. And Arena Stage didn't profit nearly as much as it expected to. Um, And uh, that really, those two shows really um, set things in motion for uh, more ink on the contracts about what's going to happen to the uh, originating theaters when these things uh, go to Broadway and succeed. Right, because they, you know they were like early examples of nonprofits uh, yeah. arranging things to sure. uh, to when they move commercially to Broadway or wherever. So that yeah, that uh, yet another way in which the public is, is a historic institution. Right. So, not only have you been able to discover new old books, mm-hmm. which is amazing because you've moved and you still have it Ah, right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) moving books the worst thing ever well i'm glad i brought this one with me it's just um, i cannot recommend it too highly it's 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 so wonderful do you recommend it more highly than Mark Setlock in the original uh, case of Fully Committed on Stars in the House? I tell you, as I said, I, I, I've only been able to see a fraction of these wonderful presentations that people are doing during the crisis, uh, these online presentations uh, where people are getting people together in the, you know separately in their homes to do readings of plays and and perform songs and uh, uh so i i can't uh i can't make any general comment on on most of them but one that i did want to catch because i loved it so much when i saw it originally back in 1999 was 
fully committed <laughs> the play by Becky Mode uh, and Mark Setlock. Uh, well, it's the credit is fully committed by Becky Mode based on characters created by Becky Mode and Mark Setlock, and originally performed by Mark Setlock off Broadway in 1999. And this is the amazing tour de force about this. Um, uh, character named Sam who takes reservations for a very, very, very high-tone, pretentious restaurant that is incredibly popular and uh, extremely difficult to get reservations for. Um, and the play is ideal for this kind of <laughs> at-home online presentation because it is one actor. Um, no set, no props or costume changes. Uh, and Mark Setlock, uh, it, it, who did it in this case, does every voice uh, on both sides of the phone conversations. So he's taking the reservations, but he's also dealing with all of those customers who he voices. And, and plus... All, all the staff of the restaurant, um, he, uh, you know, the chef, uh, the maitre d', and the cook, and everyone like that. Uh, Sam is a struggling actor, and um, he eventually triumphs in that way, and and uh, he takes revenge on Bob, his coworker, who didn't show up for his shift uh, as a reservation taker because he was on an interview for another job at Bed Bath and Beyond. But that doesn't happen <laughs> till that doesn't happen till the end, and uh, and that's a really sweet and delicious moment for Sam. But it's the script is absolutely hilarious. I, I'm. It's apparently based on real experiences of Becky Mode and Mark Setlock working in the restaurant industry. Uh, and uh, among other things, Sam has to read, um, you know, the names of some of these ridiculous recipes <laughs> that the pretentious chef comes up with, like uh, smoked cuttlefish risotto in a cloud of dry ice infused with pipe tobacco. So that's an example. <laughs> Um, the uh, play was redone, uh, re uh, well, presented on Broadway for the first time uh, several years ago with Jesse Tyler Ferguson. And actually, Mark, when he did it uh, this time, this, this uh, reading online the other day, he incorporated the uh, updates that were made for that. There were some updates in that. I, I remember originally um, uh, Tim Zagat was in it and actually uh, it appeared in it briefly as a voice to, uh, you know, from the famous Sagat family with the, the famous restaurant guide. But now um, that reference was switched to somebody I did not know of, Hester Blumenthal, uh, who I, I had to look him up. He's a British celebrity chef. And what happens here is he sh shows up for lunch and he's not on the reservation list. So everybody goes crazy. And then there was another update. Um, uh, initially, I think one of the characters was a supermodel. Uh, well, her actually her assistant uh, who was trying to get a reservation for her. But now it's Gwyneth Paltrow's assistant. And uh, so that that was a fun update. But there are about forty characters in the in the show. There's the chef, who's this really intense bully kind of a guy. Uh, the maitre d has a French accent, and um, 
Sam keeps telling her that this woman uh, customer is on the phone and she's insisting on speaking with him. And the, fr- and the chef says, oh, Sam, that woman is so ugly. She has a face like a catfish. Uh, Michael, an excellent imitation. <laughs> That's exactly how it sounded like. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very Good much. Good for you. I'll, I'll do the accents I can do. And I'll skip the other. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, Sam talks to the cook and that's a Spanish accent or Puerto Rican or Mexican or whatever. Uh, he does his dad and his brother. And then the customers include, um, these upper side Jewish matrons. One's name is Carol Ann Rosenstein Fishburn, and she keeps <laughs> calling. Uh, and there are all these people for whom not being able to get a reservation is like the worst thing that has ever happened to them in their lives. And they're absolutely freaking out uh one of them at one point i think maybe it's carol ann uh she breaks into the connection with the aid of an emergency operator (laughs) that's a day gone by yes can't can't do that anymore yes exactly (laughs) and and sam you know when he realizes it's her he goes is this an emergency (laughs) (laughs) and then there's a mafioso guy who wants a reservation and kind of offers him money, I think, and a senior citizen woman who's upset that she wasn't given her uh, AARP discount when she dined at the restaurant. <laughs> anyway, it was, uh, it was, Mark was absolutely brilliant at it. He had not actually played it in quite some time, and, and he did note that he, he had to really bone up on it, and uh, especially because he was doing the revised version, uh, not the other version that he had done for many performances but even that was in as i said like back in 1999 and the years thereafter so i um i cannot praise him highly enough he was absolutely brilliant and i thank seth and james wesley for arranging it apparently on extremely short notice i think one day's notice um most of these things are being arranged <laughs> obviously on very short notice but some shorter than others um it was astounding and and brilliant and i'm glad that i uh i did make a small donation to the actors fund um because this uh was one of the most extraordinary things i've ever seen well i want to add here that um i will never forget talking to roger bart who took over for mm. mark setlot i i don't know if he was the second or the third i think he was the second to do it um the Cherry Lane, right? That rings a bell. I anyway. So, yeah. All right. So anyway, um, I talked to him and he said uh, the first night he did it, he was so excited at, um, and he felt he really did a good job that he actually walked from the Cherry Lane to his apartment, which was uh, in the 70s, I think, but certainly far away. And he said he took such pride in the fact that he knew he did such a good job and he was so excited. And I thought this is great because he's taking over a role. People who take over a role don't get much credit. They're not going to get any awards or anything like that. And yet the idea that he, of a job well done was enough for him. I mean, he obviously wasn't making a fortune either. Off-Broadway salaries are not that great. Mm-hmm. So I really respected him for being so enthusiastic about the work itself and not the uh, benefits that might come from it. Well, I am in awe of anyone who can do any kind of a one-person 90-minute show, but this one especially just just the sheer memorization you know is 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 the basis of it but then all of those voices and switching back and forth that you know with half a second uh between each one is yeah. mm-hmm. is it's i i 
I, I don't, I literally don't understand how anyone can do it, let alone do it so well. <laughs> we should say that this is uh, from the Stars in the House series, which is uh, Seth Rudetsky has put together with his husband, James Wesley, um, in, in benefit of the Actors Fund. They're doing two a day of these live things at 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and uh, so go to starsinthehouse.com. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure what happened, but they have everything on starsinthehouse.com except for the fully committed thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they had a rights issue or if they had a technical glitch or something like that, or maybe it'll eventually show up there, but it wasn't there. I was going to link to it in the show notes, but I've, I've linked to starsinthehouse.com, so check it out. And uh, lots of really fun things there on top of the fully committed uh, that you can check out on starsinthehouse.com. It's been uh, really wonderful uh, the way in which the Broadway community has come together and done so many uh, different things to keep us all distracted, entertained, and continuing to, uh, you know provoke thoughts of what is set to come. Our good friend Kevin McInerney sent a uh, a photograph of the cherry blossoms in Central Park that it was so good I started to sneeze. So, uh, <laughs> yes, that was a beautiful photo. Yeah. And um, Brian Stokes Mitchell, who yep. uh, has recovered, hopefully, knock, 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 but mm-hmm. uh, uh, from coronavirus, um, was spotted singing The Impossible Dream out his mm. window from mm. his apartment mm. and uh, captured in video. And we put it up over on uh, the Broadway Radio page at Facebook. So if you want to take a look at that, go to uh, facebook.com slash Broadway Radio, and you can see Stokes singing The Impossible Dream, just in case you missed it a number of seasons ago. <laughs> Um, we have further news that uh, Broadway's uh, shutdown is officially extended at, at least through June 7th. Uh, this does not mean that Broadway is going to reopen on June 8th. It's just that they've uh, continued the shutdown through June 7th. That way, folks who had uh, tickets between the last uh, end of the shutdown period, I think... Uh, what was it this a- week, April yeah. April fifteenth or April thirteenth yeah, through yeah. June through June seventh? They can get their tickets officially refunded now, um, and that we will see what's going to happen, and we'll continue to update everybody as this uh, happens. Um, with this announcement that June seventh is uh, the extended period of time where Broadway's officially shut down. Uh, uh, runs over the end date of many shows, but one of them is Beetlejuice. So Beetlejuice is officially closed now. But well, I got the impression yeah. what they were saying is they're not going to reopen at the Winter Garden, but they're not necessarily closed. Did you uh, get a different reading on that? I uh, no. Uh, they've been looking at other houses and trying uh-huh. to sketch out a uh, a national tour uh, and um, Broadway. Uh, house possibilities right now. Uh, they're trying to figure out what the cost would be and everything, but everything's up in the air right now because Indeed. what was <laughs> what was you know um, three or four months ago when we first heard of uh, Music Man moving into mm-hmm. the Winter Garden and Beetlejuice uh, getting evicted. 
uh, Beetlejuice only had, you know, one or two options of theaters yes, that might have, have worked. Pick. Yeah. Now they may have their pick as mm-hmm. we think that many, many shows are going to mm-hmm. not return when Broadway reopens. Mm-hmm. Well, we're reading, of course, more news like the Schubert organization furloughing. Uh, I think that was the word they used. Um, That's the word. Uh, many of their employees. I of course, this is completely uncharted territory, and no one knows what's going right. to happen. One right. thing I I think might happen, and I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. And maybe you guys can tell me why this isn't the easiest thing to do: is to officially close all of the shows and then reopen them when and if they can. Uh, which, if they did that, that would mean they, you know, would would not have to pay anyone uh, the performers or anything past the closing date which may sound horrible but bear in mind that these people uh you know are always uh, would of course be eligible for unemployment as they always are well, and that's what are. a furlough is a furlough allows people to uh file for unemployment oh right but what that's what i'm saying is I, i'm i'm a little surprised that all of the broadway shows haven't said we are officially closing uh you know our employees will take will be able to be taken care of through unemployment and then uh their the health insurance for those people is based on the number of uh weeks that they work uh during a certain period i i believe so of course that might uh take it away from some people but there are many people that would still have it so uh do you think there's a, a a yeah, uh, so th- this is the reason for the furlough. The furlough is a is a legal term that is allowing people to file for unemployment while their employer is doesn't have work for them. Okay. So it does exactly what you're saying, but it also each Broadway show when somebody creates a Broadway show, a producer creates a Broadway show, they're in essence creating a small business. Uh and to close the Broadway show would mean to close the business. And then have to spend a ton of money to reopen the business and recapitalize the business and do it. It's very, very messy. And also you won't be, if you close the, close the show, in essence, closing the business, you would not be eligible for the $2 trillion that the, uh, federal government is putting out for, uh, aid for businesses and people across the spectrum. So, uh. Okay. So that's a major reason why. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no, absolutely. They they you know, they're they're trying to protect the business and also make it the path of least least resistance to reopen once everybody uh gets back on their feet. So, and the furlough gives the the, the term fur, the furloughing the um employees gives the these employees the ability to file for unemployment even though they've their business is still in in operation. Right. So in, in essence it it says that you know once the business reopens these people still have jobs and won't have to reapply and they will have continuous employment and there's a lot of legal reasons and uh you know effective reasons why you use furloughing ver- versus you know firing or quitting or closing the business. Thanks for explaining. Sure. So uh one of the things that we can't explain is that uh, <laughs> Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS benefits dream of the concert celebrating 25 years on of Disney on Broadway has been canceled because 
AFM, the uh, American Federation of Musicians, the uh, not the local 802, but the national AFM uh, has decided that uh, they would like to be paid for this <laughs> this benefit that was supposed to benefit COVID-19 victims uh, that are related to the Broadway community. Um, uh, nobody can really explain it. The local AFM uh, 802 has gone on record and the president, uh, Adam, I forget his last name, married to Betsy Wolf. Um, Mr. <laughs> Wolf, uh, has also gone on record. He's the, uh, the president of the local 802 saying that, you know, he would like everybody, he, uh, to, um, not collect from Broadway Cares a salary so that this can go on, but the national organization has pushed back and this has been a, uh, an ongoing thing. So, uh, it doesn't look like right now we're going to see 25 years of Disney on Broadway being streamed as a, as a benefit, which is tremendously sad because, um, that was uh, by all, by all accounts, uh, a really wonderful evening. Yeah, I did see it way back when, and uh, it was terrific. And uh, I'm surprised that this is the case, because it seems like everybody else is pitching in. Yeah, everybody. Everybody is pitching in. Uh, Peter, I'm sorry, you saw what way back when? Uh, The Disney... um, 25 years. The actual concert. Yeah, it's been done before. Oh. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. It's pre-recorded. It it, it happened uh, about... Less than a year ago or so, Peter, or... Uh, I think it was more than that, but anyway, yeah. More than that, yeah. but yeah. but it was done back then. Yeah. And back then, AFM, all the musicians in the pit were paid. Right. And then they were paid again for uh, something else that had happened related to this thing. And now they want to be paid again. Uh, I mean, the, the, the national organization, all the, the pit members have signed a uh, change.org petition saying that they do not want to be paid for this thing, that they would like to donate their art for their music and their art for uh, this cause, and the national organization has said no. So uh, it's it's crazy. It's totally crazy. So let's uh, move on to other craziness, including... (laughs) Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia question? Yeah, sure. Um, Now, um, (laughs) it was uh, very interesting to get so many responses for this, but um, so few that uh, rang the bell. The question was, a famous musical says that its main character was born in October. But in the source material that inspired this hit, the character was established as born on Leap Year Day. Who's the character and what's the musical? Well, it's Annie. Book writer Thomas Meehan said she was born on October 28th, which was actually his daughter's birthday, and that's why he did that. And as he once wrote, um, uh, I'm hoping that my new daughter, Annie, will take care of her father in his old age. And believe me, she did. Anyway, Harold Gray, who authored and drew the famous comic strip, said she was actually born on February 29th. So Tony Janicki was the second to answer four full days and many hours and minutes <laughs> after Jack Leshner got there first. <laughs> Brigadoon and Ingrid Gammerman also uh, got the answer. Um, but otherwise, boy, it was amazing how many people um, 
we're guessing everything from uh, Judge M. Cohen to uh, to other ones instead. But um, anyway, um, only those four were the ones who uh, got it this week. Well, since Annie was born on uh, Leap Day, which I did not know, is that why she always says Leap in Lizards? Wow, that never occurred to me. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. We have to find that out. <laughs> That's great. All right. So um, we're going to ask the question towards the end, if I remember. Mm-hmm. All so, right. Okay. So remind me if I forget. So uh, the topic we thought about talking about this week is hits I didn't love. So last week uh, we talked about uh, just the opposite things that had uh, not done so well at the box office that we did love. So let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum here. And Peter, why don't you start us off with hits I didn't love? Oh, yeah. Um, from the uh, golden age, um, certainly mine is uh, Man of La Mancha. Yeah, you know, John Cheever once said that he could tell everything about a man just from the way he jumped into a swimming pool. <laughs> and um, and he's right about me. I mean, I just go to the end of the board and then just hop off, you know, and that's <laughs> the way I've run my life, for better or worse. Um, but anyway, I can tell where and when a person saw Man of La Mancha from his level of enthusiasm because the most rabid fans, the ones who raise their eyes and heaven wouldn't put their hands over their hearts, are the ones who saw the original production down at a place that no longer exists, the Anta Washington Square Theater, which is um, on the NYU campus. It was built um, just very quickly um, because Lincoln Center's uh, Vivian Beaumont Theater wasn't ready yet for the um, repertory company that was going to be there. So anyway, um, once Lincoln, uh, they moved into Lincoln Center, there was this theater. And um, well, so Mano La Mancha, uh, which had been developed at good speed, went there. Now, this was not a conventional proscenium Broadway house. And I think that's one of the reasons Mano La Mancha really succeeded, because it was in a, a thrust stage, which Broadway had not had. And uh, for those of us who had seen a lot of regional theater, it wasn't that um, spectacular. Uh, we, we'd certainly seen a lot of thrust stages here, there, and everywhere, but New York hadn't. And so it really allowed the staging to be so different that um, it, it seemed unique. So, um, so I think it, I really believe that Mandelavancha owed a great deal of its success to this new to New York configuration. Um, it made the show look novel and exciting. So, um, but, then after that place was torn down, they, they moved to the Martin Beck, now the Hirschfeld. And um, by that point, the show had really had this tremendous reputation. It had won the Tony as Best Musical, which never hurts. Um, it um, had an, a hit song, The Impossible Dream. Um, Richard Kiley was giving uh, what supposedly was one of the greatest performances ever. Believe it or not, as many times as he did it, I never saw him do it. So no. that may be part of it as well. Uh, that's I think that's the one major performance in my lifetime that I've I never saw. So that may be a part of it as well, um, because I didn't see La Mancha until the, almost a year later when um, Jose Ferrer took it on the road. And I started at the Colonial in Boston and um, and I was stunned at how much I did not like it. Um, and again, the staging and the proscenium might have helped. But anyway, <sighs> so. Um, what I really um, didn't like um, also include the fact that um, the uh, Sancho Panza seemed much too Jewish to me. 
And uh, the reason that happened was the fact that Goodspeed was actually doing three musicals in rep. Hmm. And so they needed, uh, all right, uh, they needed um, Irving Jacobson to be in Huckam. Um, that's C-H-U-C-H-E-M, <laughs> but it's pronounced Huckam. Uh, it's Yiddish for wise man. Anyway, which never happened, by the way. But anyway, La Mancha did. And so they put him in the Sancho Panzer. And then when he moved to Broadway, they didn't have to heart to fire him. And so so um, it's a very odd characterization to me. So, um, But that isn't what really bothers me about Man of La Mancha. I mean, um, <sighs> You know, I'm I'm as optimistic as they come, but enough is enough. And um, so when Don Quixote sees the scullery maid, Aldonza, who later flat out admit that she's a whore, though you don't hear that in the original cast album, they, they censored it, mm. uh, he brands her a virgin. Now, why couldn't he say that she's a wonderful person underneath without going to extremes? You know, Jesus had a good deal of feeling and compassion for Mary Magdalene, but he never needed to convince himself or others that she was a virgin, you know, so... Um, so uh, when Sancho tells us Coyote won't be disappointed that the dancer is illiterate because noble women are so busy with their needlework, embroidering banners for their knights that they aren't able to read. Okay. Well, I think that's a stupid line anyway. Um, then, uh, when Coyote claims that a smelly dish rag is a gossamer token of a woman's esteem and a shaving basin is a golden helmet. That's where that, every time I go, I try, I really try to go with it. And by the time he thinks that, um, that a shaving basin is a golden helmet. That's, that's where I totally say this is ridiculous. Um, I think he comes across as senile. Um, it's, it, it doesn't work for me at all. So um, that's the one that I've never taken. Now, believe me, when, again, as I said, it took me a long time to see La Mancha. So as a result, the album came out. And aside from Sancho's song, you can barbecue my nose, make a giblet of my toes. I hate those songs. Um, <laughs> the, um, the rest of the score, I think, is terrific. And, you know, there was a lot of talk over the years that uh, Mitch Lee, who had a company that wrote jingles, mm. for commercials, um, actually said to his staff, OK, you take the Coyote song, you take the Aldonzo song, all that. I don't believe it. Why? Uh, simply for the test of time that so much time has passed. I would think that one of those people would speak up and say, uh, look, I wrote um um, Aldonza. Um, and nobody has come forward in all this time. And I don't care what agreements there are. Mitch Lee is long gone now. So, um, so I think it would have come up, you know, but, um, anyway, I'm, um, I loved so much of the album when it came out. I was, I was just disappointed when I saw the show because of all these ridiculous, mm -hmm. um, claims of optimism that I really don't think have anything to do with reality. So, so that's uh, the hit from way back when that does not speak to me at all. And it's one of the reasons, too, why I love the French album with uh, Jacques Brel. Mm. Yes, that Jacques Brel, who later had a review uh, named after him uh, with all his songs. Jacques Brel did it in Paris, I think, in 69. And the album is fabulous. And he's got the right guttural feeling for it. It sure uh -huh. is. Oh, you like it, too? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, also, because uh, Joe Darian's lyrics are so trite, if you don't know French, and I don't, you know, you don't have to deal with them. <laughs> and the Sancho songs aren't on the album for whatever reason. <laughs> um, so, so that's my favorite recording of the score. So do you, did you see the uh, Sheena Easton 1992 revival? 
I was thinking of that the other day uh, while watching these commercials because there was the, the we were talking about people uh, men on the street interviews mm-hmm. and somebody said you know she's a babe or something like that and I remember she brought that up at one Easter Bonnet competition. Um, sure, sure. Um, I I think I've seen every revival since I moved to New York, but. Um, and again, I have no problem with uh, the revivals and how they've been done. Um, I, I admit that that Raul Julia and um, Sheena Easton one wasn't so hot, but um, but I thought the Brian Stokes Mitchell one um, hmm. was terrific uh, for what it is, you know. Um, and um, I, I loved seeing it in Paris, um, not the Jacques Brel, but I saw a revival about twenty years ago in Paris that was really quite wonderful because at the end, when Quixote is so thrilled to get out of prison that he starts running up the stairs and Atande, and a guy essentially says, "You forgot the book," and he threw him the book uh, in the air, and Quixote caught it. Uh, Cervantes caught it on the staircase, and not only did you watch Cervantes get out of prison, you watched Don Quixote get out of prison, mm-hmm. and that was really uh, terrific. So, so that was good. And I saw it in London last year because uh, my buddy Lonnie Price directed a production, and I wanted to see uh, if he could bring anything to it that uh, would change my mind. I always try to go with the hope that this time it's going to work for me, you know, <laughs> but uh, it just never does. Well, two things I would say. I mean, I think that he is supposed to be senile. And and crazy. I mean, many many people in the show refer to him as that. But that said, I do agree with you. I think it would be a far better show if he was not so relentless about these things that he's saying that are obviously insane. Yeah. Uh, and the, the degree of it and the frequency. He's constantly. Uh, constantly seeing things constantly. and and make and yes, your point about her being a virgin is is very well taken. Uh, it, it's almost, um, I've always thought of it as almost a, di- a little dirty joke uh-huh. that he refers to her as a virgin when she's obviously the opposite and is going into the stables with these muleteers and, you know, uh, doing it constantly. Uh, so I, I, I understand completely w- what you said. It, it, uh, sometimes it hasn't bothered me as much depending on largely on the performer, as you say, and, uh, you know they they can um, they can help uh, to tone it down a little bit, but but I do think that's an inherent issue in the show. Hmm. So, Michael, what a uh, what's a hit that you didn't love? Uh, well, most of my uh, mine on my list, I actually confide in, confined myself to um, recent things that where I've actually seen the shows, just because I think uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, it's easier to judge the whole thing but i i did write down one uh from the golden age because i thought i should and, and mine is camelot which uh is a case where i i adore the score mm-hmm. but i just think that the book is unbelievably bad the tone keeps shifting from one scene to the next and uh it's sometimes it's a comedy sometimes it's a romance sometimes it's a very serious drama sometimes it seems to be almost a a spoof or a parody uh, i i'm surprised that alan j lerner did such a poor job of it i'm i'm not his biggest fan but it seems to me that that the flaws in that are so obvious that he, he should have really noticed and um uh, i am i'm very surprised by it i i think part of the issue is that it was adapted not from a um 
not from a, a play or a film, but just from stories. So uh, he had to really pick and choose what he was going to dramatize and then, and then come up with the structure himself because uh, it's, it was such a vast epic tale. Uh, it, it probably would have been easier for him if he had been working from a, a narrative you know, more of a, of a, a narrative structure, like a, a film script or, or a, a straight play or, uh, well, yeah, uh, either of those mm-hmm. two. Uh, so, I, um, so that's what I would say, but that's a, also a case where somehow the music, the, by Frederick Lowe is so gorgeous. And, uh, the, the flaws I mentioned of, of the shifts of tone are evident also in the score, but, but not as much somehow. And if you were to just listen to the recording, I think you would say, oh, well, I understand why this, uh, many people think of this as one of the great Golden Age shows. Hmm. Yeah, it is quite a good album, no question about that. Um, You know, from the same era, uh, one that uh, has never spoken to me was Carnival. Now, I'm going to explain why, though. This is an example of sometimes you see uh, the right show at the wrong time. And what had happened was I had seen about mm, maybe eight, 10 Broadway shows, um, uh, only a few in New York, most of them in Boston. And I told my cousin Bobby, a year younger than I, we're both teenagers. I said, listen, you got to come and see this great thing called the Broadway musical. I mean, it's just so wonderful. You go there, you sit there, the lights dim, they play an overture, the curtain goes up. Oh, wow. You know, it's really tremendous. So we get to the Colonial to see the Road Company of Carnival, and the curtain's already up, and uh, there's the set on the stage, and eventually a guy just meanders out, and we thought, my God, is this a stagehand? No, it was an actor. Then the lights dimmed, and they started the show, and so we were denied that overture, and we were denied the excitement of the curtain going up, wondering what's behind it, and again, uh, (laughs) you know, if you've been going to Broadway musicals for a long time, suddenly you're thrilled by Gower Champion's innovation in starting in a very different way, but when you really want to see something traditional that you've been used to, that you can be very disappointed by it. Now, frankly, catching up with Carnival years later, I don't like it. Uh, uh, Michael's point about Camelot being a wonderful score. Whoa, Carnival is too. Bob Merrill, who did both music and lyrics, did a terrific job with this show. Mm. Um, however, um, I do think that it's very hard to uh, to play the character of Lily, who's naive to the point of being uh, developmentally disabled. And um, she's just a little too slow in picking up uh, things that we expect her to pick up, no matter how much of a rube she may be coming from the little town of Mira. Um, so uh, so I've never liked Carnival uh, for disappointing me, and again, for the character not being so hot. <laughs> so um, for me... Uh, I've only seen the revival of Chicago. Uh-huh. I have not seen the original production of mm-hmm. Chicago. And every time I've seen the revival a, a, a few times um, um, for folks that have come in from out of town and I've gone with them to go see it. And every time I go to see that, I'm like, why did I go see that again? <laughs> and so I wonder if 
if if if I have missed something because of this concert style presentation of Chicago and having not seen any other incarnations of it, or because the music is really wonderful and everything's electric, but what do you think? The revival of Chicago is such a pale imitation of what went on at the 46th Street Theater in 1975. It's just horrifying how inadequate it is compared to the original. It's still a wonderful show, wonderfully written, very smart. As you say, the music is great, so the lyrics, I mean, everything's in the right place. It does what it's supposed to do in terms of vaudeville, uh, uh, reflecting that era. All that, and very smart idea to do it as a vaudeville because for a realistic musical, we wouldn't be behind Roxy Hart. But because it's done in such a stylistic way, we don't have to worry about the fact, Jesus, this woman killed somebody. No, we don't have to worry about that. So, um, if you had seen the original, I think you would have been very much in love with it. I, it um, I've mentioned this before, but it was the best doubleheader I ever had because I saw Chicago in the afternoon with Liza Minnelli subbing for Gwen Verdon, who was ill, and uh, at night, Chorus Line. And because Chorus Line was supposed to be the be-all and end-all, I was a little disappointed with Chorus Line, and because Chicago was supposed to be this afterthought, I was crazy about Chicago <laughs> because you know, so many times it is a, a result of our expectations. But um, I think you might feel very differently about Chicago if you'd been there in 1975. Mm. You know, I uh, I did see the original production with Liza, not with Gwen. Uh, and I completely agree about the production itself. But it's interesting to note that uh, for those who didn't see it, it um, as great as it was in terms of the uh, design and the sets and costumes and everything, it was not by any means a um, a literal evocation of the 20s uh so i think that something that they might have done when this encore's production moved to broadway low these many years ago is they really could have um done that uh uh, they could have just had really wonderful uh expensive but well done period 20s costumes instead of the uh this basic yeah. black right, uh, yeah. thing that they did, uh, you know, I, I mean, that would have been a, a one-time expense in a sense. And I, I think that that would have made a huge difference. I, I personally don't think Chicago is something that necessarily uh, benefits that much from actual sets. Although the, um, the lighting, uh, the, like the neon stuff that they used in the original mm-hmm. product, that mm-hmm. that was a, ch- a tremendous mm-hmm. boost. Mm-hmm. So they could have done that as well. Um, I yeah, I mean that that is a way that they that they could have gone. And maybe I don't know, maybe if they had known it would be so successful and last right, so long, yeah. maybe they would have done that. But the Weislers went another way, and we have what we have, and it is what it is. But at least it led to a um, <laughs> uh, you know, a really good movie of a of a show that probably almost certainly would not have been made into a film. Otherwise. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Ron Fassler told me that, um, that when the Weisslers called up after the encores, uh, presentation that um, they said, look, we know you must have a million offers, but we're going to put our uh, toe in the water. The answer was, no, we haven't had a million offers. Nobody's Mm. called. You're the only one. Interesting. Um, So, um, but boy, are they glad they made that phone call? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Wow. (laughs) So, Michael, do you have another hit you didn't love? Uh, Well, I wanted to just uh, 
do a kind of omnibus thing and say all of the bio musicals except Jersey Boys and Beautiful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I can't, maybe there's another one I can't think of at the moment, but those two I think are so well done and so exemplary that uh, you think, well, why can't the others be like this? Um, I really, really dislike, I would say, all of the others that I can think of, including the current ones, uh, Tina and Ain't Too Proud. Um, but Share uh, was one of the better ones, the Share show. I think there were moments where they got that. And maybe if they had been able to, um, maybe if they had worked on it more before they brought it to the stage, it would have been even better. I, I know that they apparently made significant changes uh, between the time it was played out of town and time it opened on Broadway. Um, but um, uh, yeah, the, the, I, the Tina one and the, uh, the um, Donna summer one, I think was, was a, was an absolute low point, but so many of them uh, Lennon, if that counts, I mean, that was a more free form kind of a show. Uh, um, yeah. I, I, I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I, you, and you would think, uh, that they would be easier to do uh, just kind of <laughs> just kind of get somebody good to write the book and, and give us a pricey of the person's life. If you're trying to do the whole, their whole life, uh, which you don't have to do. Uh, uh, so that's something to keep in mind for people. I think when they're, when they're, um, when it, when they take it in mind to do a, a bio musical, uh, uh, we apparently we have read that the Michael Jackson musical was to have focused on a, a small part of his life when he was, um, I think, preparing for uh, one of the big tours. Uh, but they but they were it's seemingly going to have flashbacks because they you know, they were casting for young Michael as well. Uh, so I. I don't know if we'll ever see that show. I, I had doubts that we would ever see it even before the COVID crisis, um, you know, because of the, uh, yeah, the plastics and banners are up. Uh, <laughs> they're raring to go. As far as that's concerned, not that, that means anything. We've had plenty of marquees up yeah. uh, for Annie too, and paper moon and the baker's yeah, yeah. wife. But, um, yeah. but um, yeah, um, for all the heat that funny girl takes uh, for having a lousy book, uh, it essentially at least starts out dealing with one uh, episode in her life. And it must have really been something when your husband has served a prison term and right. he's coming back. Um, and this is the first time you're going to see him. Yes, that's just a framing device. And it leads into the type of thing that you're talking about that you don't like the whole uh, life story. Um, that said, though, I really do believe the funny girl deserves much more credit um, because that's a galvanizing moment. What's it like when you see your husband when you're a star and he's um, prisoner? two four six oh one three oh two whatever he was <laughs> you know i mean that's really something so then there are shows of course that we um only like in part um that are hits and um for me that's into the woods um when i read in the second edition of sondheim and company that the next sondheim show was going to be all these fairy tale characters meeting i thought ah oh, what a great idea. Oh, my God, this is going to be the funniest thing he's written since the funny thing happened on the way of the forum. He, of course, being Stephen Sondheim. And while I think the first act of um, uh, Into the Woods is funny, it wasn't as funny as I thought it was going to be or had hoped it was going to be. But the second act doesn't work for me at all, because after all, 
two wrongs don't make a right. And I mean, uh, there's no question that Jack stole the harp came, you know, all the stuff that he did was wrong. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the giant's wife should enact revenge, but the point is, you know, killing her um, seems to me a lousy thing too. I, I, I understand when somebody really threatens us, you know, we have to do something, but I just don't like the direction it takes that it deals with um, uh, revenge and, um, and, and the need to destroy and all that goes with that. And, I would have never expected that we were going to lose Joanna Gleason during the uh, the middle of the second act. Mm. Um, that really surprised me a great deal too. So it becomes much too dark for me. And for that matter, I had always wished that Into the Woods um, not take place during the the midnights and all that goes with that. I don't understand why it couldn't have been a daylight show. Um, that we it could have been a nice um, bright at least for the first act. Why don't we have it bright? Because um, forests do experience daylight too. I mean, there are twenty four hours in the day, and some of them are light times. So, so, um, so it was much too dark for me, even when it was funny, and tremendously disappointing to me when it got very, very dark and uh, dealt with two wrongs um, issues. So. So that disappointed me. Well, aside from everything else, I, I would say that James Lapine seems to have a problem, have had a problem with second acts in general. So <laughs> uh, I think that uh, that that's a main source of the problem you're mentioning. But it, it, but you know, for what it's worth, I know people who say that the second act is what makes into the woods. Yeah, indeed. You know, I mean, because of the sure. because of the emotional content and the, the you know, there sure. is a lot in it that's wonderful about the community banding together, which is something, you know, that now especially we, we can all relate to very, very much. Um, so, yeah. Do you think that at the White House press briefings that they have every day, they'll eventually sing It's Your Fault? <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't gotten there already. <laughs> So another thing that maybe it's because I haven't seen the original. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I did see the Broadway, uh, the the tour that came to Broadway and stayed for a little while. At, I think it was at the St. James's Hare, um, well, I, which I've loved some of the music of Hare, but um, the productions that I've seen of Hare and even the revival that I saw of Hare that came into Broadway – um, a few years back, uh, I, I felt as though that uh, it, it just didn't it just didn't click for me. Uh, did I miss something there in missing the original, or maybe it's a feeling from a time that I didn't live in? Well, as we have discussed in terms of the narrative, and it's it's interesting because I just mentioned it earlier yeah. in terms yeah. of Gerald Freeman, sure. but uh, but I mean as loose as the the uh, narrative is in the, in the final version of the show, apparently it was non-existent <laughs> in, in what uh, Friedman was handed. So that, that's what I meant. I'm, I'm only speaking relatively, but many, many people feel that the screenplay that Michael Weller wrote for the film is a, you know, is a, just you a bet. vast, vast oh, improvement. Oh yeah. Um, you know, at the time of hair, I, I, I believe uh, the feeling was that it didn't need to be cohesive and, and, and didn't need to have a firm narrative. It was really more of a happening and the very, uh, looseness of it and and the feeling of spontaneity and messiness and 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 free spiritedness of it was was uh 
was part and parcel of, of what they were doing. And I understand that intellectually, but uh, maybe that's something that doesn't doesn't uh, uh, stand the test of time very well. Uh, you know, if we were seeing it in 1968, <laughs> uh, when all of that was happening and, you know, done by people who were actually going through it, I can only imagine that it was very, very different. Yeah, I was there um, pretty early on. Um, it opened um, at the end of April and I was there in early June. Mm. And I had known the Off-Broadway album, which is far more serene and sedate than um, the uh, Broadway cast album, which was I don't believe was out yet. Or uh, if it was out, I would have had it. Uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, the thing I talked about Carnival earlier about the fact that um, it, it was different, but I wasn't ready for it to be different. Well, this was six years later and I was ready for something different and I certainly got it. And um, I adored hair, though I had a completely different um, misconception of what it was going to be because um, living in um, suburban Massachusetts, I, I was living a pretty sheltered life. And so when I saw in variety that the 16th song in the show that I, on my cast album, Aquarius was now opening the show. I assumed that the curtain would go up and we would see all these people doing essentially a hootenanny folk song type thing. Um, looking um, up um, at the sky and singing beautifully um, Aquarius as, as, as a folk song, um, a la Peter, Paul, and Mary. And that wasn't the case at all. Again, the curtain was up, um, and all these hippies came coming down the aisle. Um, not at all what I expected, but I certainly went with it um, because I had known so much of the music, not all of it, because some of the uh, off-price Broadway score was dropped and certainly songs were added. Plenty of them were added, in fact. And um, and I thought it was terrific beyond belief. But again, yeah, you had to be there. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. So uh, any other um, hits that weren't for you that you want to throw in before we wrap up? Um, I also have to say that um, there are hits I, I don't like because they had certain influence on other shows. Mm. And um, so it's not that I think that the Rocky Horror Show isn't good. I, uh, I enjoyed it immensely. I, I remember getting that British cast album early on and liking it very much. And Little Shop of Horrors, too. Um, my problem is that these were gateway drugs for shows that were inferior, that a lot of people said, oh, these are the So Bad It's Good musicals. Let's write a So Bad It's Good musical. Uh, but they didn't have the talent of uh, Richard O'Brien and certainly not the talent of Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Now, these are, are certainly important uh, building blocks in the late 20th century, early 21st century musical. Of course, not Ashman, who um, died much too young. Uh, probably the greatest casualty we, we, we had from the AIDS um, disaster um, in, in terms of uh, Broadway musicals. But um, all things considered, considering that they opened up the doors from musicals like Evil Dead, um, it's, it's really too bad that um, that genre happened uh, with people who didn't have remotely the talent of these really great guys who knew what they were doing. Yeah, and if you're going to talk about um, shows that had bad influences, uh, <laughs> uh, I, thanks for mentioning that. Um, I would mention all of the 
European pop operas, Phantom, Les Mis, and Miss Saigon, uh, pop operas, poperettas, whatever you want to call them, because you know they came at a time. It's it really is fascinating to look at it. Uh, first of all, it was the AIDS crisis, which had a tremendous, mm-hmm. tremendous, uh, awful horrible, devastating effect on the theater and the musical theater in particular. I just read recently um, uh, someone was quoting Frank Rich uh, as saying that he feels the theater never recovered from AIDS, mm-hmm. still has mm-hmm. not really recovered mm-hmm. from AIDS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was many things lost, uh, individual artists, but also it seemed like the art of the American book musical mm-hmm. was, was lost for a long time. Uh, and it finally is starting to come back, but in a, in a very different form. But for a while there, it was uh, all of these things with sung dialogue. And it's like, all right. I mean, I, I mean, I love sung dialogue. I love opera. I love real opera. But yes, you do. I don't yeah. think they, that that's done well in these shows. And not every show has to be through sung. So that was unfortunate. And then I, I, won't, I won't dwell on it, but Mamma Mia, uh, you know, I'm... <laughs> I've, I mean, I, I. How did I forget that one? That would have been my first thing to lead off. I well, don't put it out of my head. Right, but actually, I thought I, I would end with it, you know, without without banging it into the ground. But just mm-hmm. uh, because, first of all, establishing that something can be a hit without a new score, and then I think the songs are used so witlessly and so stupidly. And the fact that it inspired so many imitations, many of them flops, but, um, well, most of them flops, but some of them hits. And I, so I think that was, um, and I, a disastrous I, movie. I do wish it had never happened. <laughs> All right. So, uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to our trivia question, which I remembered, mm-hmm. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can get it automatically downloaded from Apple Podcasts. It would be great for us. Uh, a lot of people are listening to podcasts these days. If you can go and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, if you are going to give us less than a five-star review, please <laughs> just uh, why skip it. Don't waste your time um, because uh, less than a five-star review really knocks us down uh, in the rankings, and I'm not sure why people... There's a number of people out there who hate listen to us, and I'm not sure why that is. Okay. Anyway, you can also find you us on iHeartRadio. Yeah, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have a question for this week? If you were playing Monopoly, sometime during the game, you'd most likely have the chance to sing an appropriate Rogers and Hart song from one of their 1930s hits. What song would that be? <laughs> okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
is getting dimmer. I think I see a glimmer. Into the woods you have to go, but that's the way you 